Hello, and welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a podcast from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. My name is Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. In this podcast, we explore unique architecture and design from a prairie perspective. Many of us admire striking visual design, but we don't necessarily get to visit the actual places. We often see them only through photography. Today's episode, number 39, is titled simply Photographers because today's two guests create photographic imagery that presents unique images of the built environment here and abroad. And they are Jacqueline Young. Jacqueline Young is a Winnipeg photographer of architecture with formal training in fine arts, photography, and a Bachelor of Environmental Design from the University of Manitoba. She established Station Point Photographic in 2016 as a professional venture into commercial photography. She's been widely published in Canadian Architect Magazine, Sustainable Architecture and Building Magazine, Border Crossings, the Winnipeg Free Press, Archinect, Architizer, and Arc Daily. And she has received a Canadian Architect Magazine Photography Award. She's here now. Hello, Jacqueline Young. Hello. And also with us is Lisa Stinner-Kuhn, who's an artist based in Winnipeg. She has a Master's of Fine Arts in Photography from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She has a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the University of Manitoba School of Art. She also teaches at Winnipeg's Martha Street Studio. She has shown her photographic work locally, nationally, and internationally. She has received support from the Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Canada Councils for the Arts and she has received a Canadian Architect Magazine Photography Award, and in 2021 was shortlisted for the Architizer Photography Award. Hello, Lisa Stinner-Kuhn. You've described your art as being concerned about the photographic reconstruction of the human built environment. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by photographic reconstruction? In a way, I actually find all photographs to be a kind of reconstruction of whatever was originally photographed. But I feel like there's something that's quite magical that happens when photographs are taken of the built environment. Whether it's a photograph in a fancy magazine like Dwell Magazine of an iconic building, or even a photograph of, you know, somebody's dog in their living room posted on Instagram, I think there's something that's really interesting in the push and pull between the different kinds of construction going on. There's the thing itself that you're photographing that's like a construction. So whether it's architecture or an interior environment or even like a still life of objects, I would consider that all to be part of the built environment. But there's that construction going on in reality. But I feel that in the camera, there's a similar kind of construction going on. So whether it's simply just the framing of the piece that that you're photographing, but also the kind of construct that's happening in in the concept in the photographer's brain themselves. So I love this kind of push and pull with photographs of the built environment. The first project I ever worked on that sort of encompasses this idea is my vague terrain project. And in that project, I'm really interested in finding spaces that are somehow in transition that in the subject matter itself, where you can see what's going on, you can see that it's something that's 
fleeting. It's a moment that's fleeting in the kind of photograph that I'm interested in taking. I'm interested in making it seem as though everything is purposeful and it's meant to be there for a very long time. Sometimes the built environment that I'm photographing in reality looks actually really very different in the photograph in the end. Maybe it might be good to just briefly talk about my construct series where I photograph on these large scale construction sites. Almost all of my work does deal with built environments that are in transition somehow. So the construction site's a really good um, way of viewing this idea of a, a moving site constantly changing. So these large sites that I'm on are chaotic. They're actually sometimes really dangerous. And I feel like that chaos is a nice challenge because what I'm actually looking for in the photograph is to create something that's very serene and very still and to make something in the end that looks completely different than a construction site. So I love this idea that a viewer might come in to a gallery and see these large prints of mine. And logically they know that what they're looking at is a construction site, but that's not the feeling that they take away from it. And I'm hoping that what they'll see is something completely different, like maybe even a science fiction stage set, or maybe the appearance of something that looks like an archeological dig. And the reason why I'm interested in that, that kind of reconstruction, that kind of transformation, is because I love this feeling that I'm kind of like imagining I'm an alien photographer and I'm coming to earth and I'm seeing all these things new for the first time. I'm surrounded by building materials like concrete, drywall, steel. In Manitoba, there's lots of limestone, which we have a Tyndall stone. I know you had a whole episode on that, which was really interesting. But in these configurations that I find them in, they're almost like abstract sculpture when I can find them. And it's very rare that I find them like this. But when I do, it's like this amazing moment. And, and it's what I live for. Jacqueline, you've said of your work that you strive to present the subjects of your work as simultaneously rigorous and playful. What are the subjects of your work? I'm very interested in this duality between being in the present moment, capturing something that can only be happening in that moment, and the technical nature of photography and assessing a situation and making a composition, translating someone's you know vision through that, and at the same time, trying your best not to make it too constructed because people pick up on that. You know, if you do have a subject matter outside of just the frame, if you have a, a scale figure in, in the image, you know, people pick up on it. Are they standing in the almost exact too perfect spot where it's so constructed that you start maybe picking apart the frame instead of really allowing yourself just into the scene that someone's creating for you? Jacqueline, you have an architecture degree in environmental design from the University of Manitoba, where you now teach photography. What were your plans in 2011 when you obtained that degree? What did you know about photography 11 years ago? I knew that I was connected to it as a medium for expressing ideas, but in a technical manner, I knew very little. And I was accidentally shooting at an aperture of 4.5 for three years because I just had no idea what the tool offered me. I guess I was just becoming lucky and 
Lisa could probably speak to this as well. You know, some people have an inherent ability to frame work. They can frame a scene. It's just something they feel and they know. And there's this balance that people can, and I've seen it too as an educator. A lot of the times people connect that way. So that was me. I was able to connect through that tool, but I didn't know the technical nature of the tool. <laughs> Lisa, you too are a commercial photographer, but what you're really well known for is for your conceptual photography. How do you make the distinction between those two pursuits? I would say for 15 years before I even thought about taking commercial photographs, I was never interested in taking commercial photography. I was basically a, a conceptual art maker. But things changed because my work started getting seen by architects. And I think that they really appreciated what I was trying to do as an artist. And so some of them contacted me asking me um, what I would think about um, trying to interpret one of their buildings. I liked the challenge. I liked this idea. But I would say for around five years of trying to photograph commercially, I really failed at it. I was horrible at it. And I think it's because it was really difficult for me to reconcile uh, everything that I had taught myself to start looking visually, conceptually at uh, the built environment with my camera, and then to just sort of switch my brain and think about photographing and trying to please somebody else. It was just a very difficult transition. But the thing is, I really also enjoyed photographing for architects. I loved the process. I loved that I was able to work with people because up until that point, I was basically just working for myself, just photographing all by myself. It got a little bit lonely. And then all of a sudden, I had this opportunity to work in a group with people and to think together. And so I think that's the main reason why I switched over to occasionally photographing for architects um, on a commercial level is because I was, I was able to be a sort of part of a community and photograph with them. When I first started, I, I don't think that the architects actually liked my interpretation of their buildings um, artistically. So I had to come up with some kind of balance between my conceptual way of seeing the world and then also a commercial way of seeing the world because I do really feel that they are quite different. So now I can safely say that I'm able to mix sort of the two mediums together when I'm shooting commercially. I don't know how, but it just switched in my brain one day. I was able to just go from using the same technical tools, go from photographing for my conceptual work and then switching my brain over to the, to the commercial world. I find that there are so many wonderful parallels between what she's saying and how I feel about working as well. And, you know, Lisa and I have had a few opportunities to just sit and talk with each other about the struggles of where we find ourselves. And there's so many similarities between the challenges, I think, um, mm -hmm. regardless of whether you call yourself, you know, an artist first or a commercial photographer first. And mm -hmm. I don't even know where I fit in that realm anymore. Mm -hmm. um, because I do consider myself an artist, even though I'm not, uh, I don't have a master's in fine art and I'm not acclaimed like Lisa is, but I also couldn't solely call myself a commercial photographer because I ultimately do care very much for the work and for my process and that relationship between 
my voice and my client's voice. For me, it can't just be them saying, I want my building to look like ABC. For me, that's so empty. And I also feel that there's a lot of architects who believe their work needs to look a certain way. And the more experienced I become, the more I feel that they're heavily influenced by what editorial publication tells them their work needs to be. And this has come at the expense of truly documenting spaces for how they are. Architects, they want the white, white walls and they want everything to be bright. They want everything to be lit evenly and perfectly, but that may not be the consequence of the design decisions that they've made. And so I sometimes find that the challenge is helping them recognize that like shadows aren't bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Deep, dark, moody spaces can be beautiful and Maybe there should be this shift towards accepting spaces and documenting them and allowing people like Lisa or myself to frame these spaces beautifully and artfully and express that and not try to make it something it isn't to fit into the normal realm of that type of work. I also think it's an extremely lonely uh, discipline. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can relate to that a lot. Yeah, And with that loneliness, I think comes a lot of people keeping information really close to themselves for fear of people taking that information and potentially, for lack of a better word, you know, screwing you over with it. That's a big challenge I find in this discipline. I would love to see more community. That's I really um, cherish my opportunity and my relationship to speak with someone like Lisa and people like her because it's just such a closed community. I know mm -hmm. you can speak to that too, Lisa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel like this sense of there being this uh, definition, uh, especially in the photography world between fine art and commercial is it's over the years has been getting very, very thin. And I, I find this to be really exciting. And the, the other aspect for me as a, as a conceptual art photographer is that I don't like thinking about myself as a fine art photographer. It's more that I'm just, I'm thinking about concepts all the time in terms of my influences, especially for my work that I'm making right now. I mostly look up to architectural photographers and I, and I look to the appearance of architectural photography more than I do to conceptual photography. So it gives me more ideas in terms of what I want to do, uh, the, the techniques that I want to use with my camera. So I do appreciate the Vancouver school and the German school, the ones that make these very hyper-realistic photographs where everything's in focus and it's almost more real than real. This is the kind of uh, photography I'm really interested in. But the surface appearance and the kind of idealism that you can get in architectural photography, I'm continually fascinated by that in the commercial world. I owe a lot of my ideas and what I do in my artwork to when I look at photographers like, like Jacqueline and, and what she's doing. And I, I try to copy, <laughs> I know it sounds <laughs> bad, but I try to copy no. a, lot of, a lot of techniques that they use. And of course, I can use that in my commercial work too. And Jacqueline, let's talk a little bit about uh, people who've inspired you along the way. And when you and I were talking the other day, you mentioned the Montreal-based British photographer, James Britton. What was so special about him? 
I just felt really connected to the way that he works. Anytime I was assisting him and I would see him frame up an image and I, we would be discussing, and that's something I really love about James is that when I assist him, I really feel like I'm working with him. I'm a part of the day. I, I'm not treated as sort of this standby secondary person. That felt yeah, really special to be a part of. The opportunity for mentorship in this field just is so low. And I'm sure that Lisa can also relate to that, mm-hmm. which is why I feel so thankful and grateful to have her to talk with. Ditto, but, Jacqueline. Yeah, James's work is very, I, I want to use the word honest, and it may come from uh, his European background. And when I look at European publications, there is a lot more acceptance of, you know, what I was describing earlier with shadows being dark, with highlights being bright, with space is not looking so perfect. Seeing that point of view, something I was already thinking about and kind of when, you know, when I'm looking at precedents out there and wondering, why does everything look the same? Surely these spaces are also different. So why are they being flooded with light? Why are they being dressed up in this way where they mm-hmm. all look the same? It just, it takes so much of what's interesting about a space away from it. And in my view, the most interesting part of photographing an architectural space is how light interacts with it. Maybe that's what I found inspiring and just appreciate about James and being able to work with him was watching that someone else felt this way and affirming a way that I felt and seeing that it could be done, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we talk a little bit about cameras? Yeah. Very curious to know what you two do, what you use and how you use them. So Jacqueline, what about you and your cameras? I have only ever had two DSLRs in my career. I started with, yeah, I started with a Canon 5D Mark II. And then I, I guess last year, no, it's hard to know the years now because 2020 and 2021 didn't really happen. (laughs) I think it must have been 2019. I bought a Canon 5D Mark IV. That's it. That's really. Um, That's yeah. Good. Those are the only two DSLRs I've ever worked with. You know, I could get a little bit tech nerdy here with Lisa. Did some of the Fuji cameras? Um, you know, 100 mm. megapixels yeah. starts to get really exciting. Yeah. And more and more as I read about the difference between medium format cameras with digital backs versus DSLR that has 60 or 100 megapixels like the argument really is out there that there's not such a discernible difference anymore because I don't actually believe that yet but I Mm -hmm. also can't afford a medium format camera Mm -hmm. with a digital back yet Mm -hmm. because as we both know it's quite an investment Mm -hmm. so like what's your take on that when I teach this with my students I talk about the size of an image sensor So the larger the image sensor, the better the quality because the pixels aren't being forced into such a small space. So technically, the larger the image sensor, the better the quality. But I would say coming out of the camera, there's not a huge difference. The difference is when you start making changes in Photoshop, 
So when you start making big adjustments to the color and to the contrast and to the lightness and the darkness, that's where the big bad boys really shine. So like the, the phase one backs and things like that. So I think a, a lot of photographers are now, because these large format cameras are really expensive, they're basically photographing a whole bunch of photographs to make one shot because they can piece them later together in Photoshop. And when they do that, they get a huge, usually a gigabyte size file. And when you have a really big file like that, you can print them really large and still have tons of fidelity and, and resolution to it. So you don't have to spend $50,000 on a camera to have high resolution, but it for sure helps. It helps. Lisa, I understand yeah. in the early days, you actually worked with yeah. large format film cameras. I got really interested in this, again, this idea of hyper-realism and getting lots of focus, not just from high depth of field where you can get everything in focus from the foreground to the background, but I was really interested in like what I was just saying, printing really large and printing so large, but still keeping that detail. So kind of like you walk into a gallery and you feel like you look at a photograph, it's like you're looking through a window. And you could almost like touch every little bit of information on the print. So back when I was starting, I'd say 1998, 1999, the only way to do this was with a very large format camera and using very large film. My favorite camera was a Linhoff Technica 3, and it was a German camera from World War II. And it looked like those old accordion press cameras. And they were just such wonderful, beautiful pieces of art in themselves. And so I kind of love that whole process. But it got very expensive. Every sheet of film plus developing got to be around $5 a shot. I couldn't do that anymore. And so then I went to digital. Lisa, could we talk a, a bit about a concept that you spoke about in the very beginning of the conversation? terrain vague or mm -hmm. terrain vague as a conceptual model for your work. What is terrain vague? I actually stole the name and used it for one of my projects, but I made it English. I called it vague terrain. But the French term terrain vague is an architectural term from France. It, it really clicked with me conceptually. So it's basically talking about spaces that have become forgotten or disordered within an urban environment. In the term, they talk about there being two different ways of seeing this. So the first is sort of negatively to see it as these spaces are disordered and they need to be fixed up. But then the second interpretation of it that I'm interested in is this kind of positive response to these spaces. So in my Vig Terrain project, I focused on a bunch of different spaces and built environments that are in transition somehow. Uh, the majority of them are actually photographed at trade show halls when they're being constructed and deconstructed. But then also a lot of the spaces are of abandoned spaces, abandoned office spaces, industrial parks that haven't been looked after. But all these spaces I find um, because they're not in a perfect state and I feel this way about Winnipeg in general, actually, that Winnipeg is kind of a rough and tumble city. And there's all these vague terrain areas in the built environment where there's just not enough effort to look after them. But in a photograph, I feel like I can create this kind of idealistic space out of these non-ideal spaces. And I can see them as these spaces that are full of potential somehow. So full of the ability to become anything that it wants to be. 
and, and also in the photograph, especially my vague train shots where I'm photographing at trade show halls where they're being constructed and deconstructed. What I'm interested in is making these moments, and I mentioned this a little bit in the beginning, where it's obviously in transition, but finding them where they almost look like a diorama. They almost look like they're constructed, but in the end, what they end up looking like out of all this chaos is something that's purposely supposed to be there in that configuration with those objects looking the way that they're supposed to look. And that really excites me that a camera can do that, that with a simple photograph. One of the things that you're interested in as well is intense depth of field. Yeah. yeah. Why? Because I'm interested in the idea that the camera can see more than the human eye. If you stop and you think about it, if you, if you just sit wherever you're sitting and move your eyes around, you realize that if you just keep your eyes focused in one spot, everything on the periphery is out of focus. And then you move your eye over to a little bit to the left, and then what, you, what was just in focus is no longer in focus anymore. So our brains are making up that information, thinking that we can see everything in focus all at the same time, but we can't. And so that's why it's exciting to me that when you're photographing full depth of field where everything is in focus from the foreground to all the way to the background, all in one split second, that's kind of magic. How do you do that technically? Well, that's what Jacqueline was talking about. She said she was photographing at an f-stop of 4.6, which is really a, a wide aperture. So what you want to do is stop down your aperture, which is just the opening or the diaphragm of your lens or your camera, and you just want to have a tiny, tiny little opening. What that does is that just focuses everything from the foreground to the background but it makes your exposures really long. So you have very long exposures. And that's why architectural photographers are always having tripods because they have longer exposures usually. So Jacqueline, what's your experience with getting intense depth of field? I would call myself an F-16 queen now. Very rarely am I shooting at a very wide aperture, unless I'm desperate times call for desperate measures. You need the shot. You don't have a tripod. It's dark out. You know, you're trying to get a detail shot maybe. Otherwise, tripod is my best friend. The tripod allows me to really focus on my framing, take a step back, be connected through the tool. And it allows for techniques that handholding doesn't allow for. It allows you to direct your subject by being able to, again, step back from the tool and talk with your subject. It feels a little bit more organic. No one really loves to stare into the lens. It's intimidating. Mm -hmm. So it's great to be able to yeah, have more of the personal interaction. Long depth of field, I would say, I'm not even sure that I consciously, outside of a technical approach know why I except for that you know you typically want the front of the building and the back of the building or the front of a room and the back of the room to be in focus it's so exciting to listen to Lisa talk about it from this totally different perspective because I find it really inspiring this year I've decided to take a step back in the volume of the shooting and the volume of the clients that I shoot with, because I'm trying to really remember what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And having intent in your work means everything. 
that's what I really love listening to you talk about Lisa because it reminds me that it's just so meaningless if you don't have that intent and for sure I don't know it's exciting to hear you talk about it and then to remind myself why I'm okay with potentially making less money this year because I'm taking a step back and that's really hard as a business person but it's not hard as an artist to remember who I am and why I'm doing this yeah and that photography is magic it's a good thing that this is not a leap year for you, Jacqueline, right? Because in 2016, that yeah. leap year, you took, what, 366 photos, one a day, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> and I thought I wasn't going to be very busy that year because it was the first year that I was dedicating to full time. And so I thought, oh, I might not be that busy. I should keep my skills up to date and current and flex those muscles every day. It ended up being not only a leap year, but an extremely busy year for work. I looked back on that and I probably should do it again. I don't want to jinx myself. It was a lot of work. Say on average, I spent probably four hours a day making that image, editing that image, posting it on social media to prove that I had done it. Then I ended up traveling around the world, quite literally, flew from Winnipeg to Venice to Spain to Bali to China and then back to Canada and I don't know that I would have taken my kit with me in the way that I did were I not doing that project and it forced me to take way too much I probably had thirty thousand dollars with a camera gear and a backpack on my back like in hindsight like such a dumb idea but the lenses that we use are typically fixed focal length and you know how it feels when you're like oh I wish I just had the 50 and I'm on the 24 right and you know you start to get a little bit too maybe picky actually maybe that would be a good challenge for the next one is an image a day but on one focal length for the entire year that would be Mm. a challenge what effect would the one focal length have you'd have an immediate constraint for some reason I'm thinking of the 50 because You know, a lot of people, when they start off in photography, they get their nifty 50. Everyone loves that focal length. And I have to admit that that was the very last focal length lens I ever purchased. So I shot as wide as wide can be. My, before I got any tilt shift lenses, I, my, my best friend was the 16 to 35. I bet I would notice if I shot on a 50 for an image a day for a whole year that I would probably start to see my trends. I typically find myself making vignettes with 50s. So it would be an interesting challenge to force myself to move further away or to get even closer to whatever it was I was framing. Mm -hmm. And maybe that could be part of it too. As an educator at the University of Manitoba, One of the exercises that I get students to do is to photograph one thing. They're not allowed to move it. And I want them to photograph it at least a hundred different ways. So how can you, the person using the tool, move your body and your point of view of something that doesn't move and make a hundred distinctly different frames of that object? Maybe that's something that I could, you know, incorporate into a project like that too. If it's perhaps three images a day 
one focal length and three distinctly different points of view of something, even if it's mm -hmm. not a specific object, but even just framing some kind of scene. Lisa, can we talk a little bit about your current interest in mid-century modest, mm -hmm. which is a term that you've taken to using. Now, lots of us know about the current preoccupation with mid-century modern, but what's mm -hmm. mid-century modest and why does it interest you as a photographer? I've always been interested in mid-century modern architecture. I think, like you said, it's kind of a fad. <laughs> it's a bit crazy how many people, especially I would say millennials, can I use that word? Um, there are a lot of people buying <laughs> mid-century modern houses and trying to restore them back to their original glory. But I feel I'm more interested in how the original intentions of mid-century modern architecture, what the architects were trying to do with that type of architecture. What I'm interested in especially is the way that it was a kind of breakaway design from tradition, a breakaway kind of architecture from nostalgia in a kind of reaction to the Second World War and all the, the awful things happening in the world at the time. I'm interested in that and then how it's completely over time the interpretation of, of mid-century modern has changed. So instead of breaking away from nostalgia, and breaking away from any kind of tradition, it's now become a very traditional kind of architecture and so many people are nostalgic for it. And so in my photographs, I'm really interested in that tension and how the passage of time can change the cultural interpretation of a built environment. So even though I'm a lover of mid-century modern, the work isn't really about that. The work is not really about my love of the architecture. It's more about this interesting dichotomy between the original intention of the architecture and then how it's perceived today. But mid-century modest, it's a movement that's been around for, I guess, about almost 15 years now. But mm -hmm. the modesty part of things yeah. focuses on what? Smaller okay. houses? I'm really interested in uh, going back to architectural photography as a kind of inspiration for me. Photographs of Julius Schulman in Los Angeles in the 50s and 60s when he photographed these amazing idealistic photographs of those beautiful glass case study houses in Los Angeles. Or even Henry Callen, our local photographer from the 50s and 60s who took these amazing iconic photographs of Winnipeg architecture. I feel like most of the architecture that they were photographing were of these more grand types of mid-century modern, more luxurious, especially with the homes, very extravagant homes. So what I'm interested in is focusing on the mid-century modern that was part of my life growing up the office spaces I would go into, the doctor's offices I would go into. I'm trying to get access into the Manitoba Hydro headquarters that's on Taylor because it's being sold right now. So the kind of like more generic, more modest kind of mid-century modern, especially the suburban mid-century modern houses I'm really, really fascinated with. So right now I'm my ideal situation for the houses is, is actually finding a mid-century modern house that's just being sold by the original owners 
and they've been in that house for like 60, 70 years. I, as you can imagine, it's getting harder to find these houses now, but I am able to find quite a few of them. When I walk into these houses, there's this amazing feeling of the original intent of the architecture because it's still quite original looking, but then there's this amazing patina over the past 60, 70 years that's evident in the photographs. Just love, and I'm so excited about that tension in the photographs. I find it interesting that the term modesty turns mm -hmm. up here because very little of contemporary architecture is thought of as modest. Mm -hmm. There's a great deal of extravagance and the more extravagant, the better. But in terms of affordability for housing, it's a big preoccupation for so many people as house prices go through the roof. Right. More modest homes are something that we perhaps ought to aspire to because we can afford them. Definitely. Well, Definitely. And not only can you afford the house right off the hop, you can afford to finish the interior or the exterior with perhaps some nicer materials because the volume of what you're you know, having to purchase is just lower. <laughs> Some of these mid-century modest houses are a thousand square feet, which is not thought of now as an appropriate sized house. And so many of these houses I'm going into, they actually had families with five children. Every bedroom would have bunk beds and it was a wonderful way for them to live. I think expectations back in the 50s for a suburban home were definitely a lot more modest, a lot more modest than they are today. Jacqueline, can we talk about one of your photos it won the Award of Merit in 2021 from Canadian Architect magazine. It was of the public safety building behind Winnipeg City Hall. It was built in 1966. It was a brutalist building that was vacant and soon to be demolished. You shot your photo just before that demolition took place, and there was a garbage truck passing by the building. I just felt I was in the right place at the right time. I had the composition set up and I was waiting for that Henri Bresson decisive moment where that garbage truck and that person walking by and just making that frame. And, you know, I made a lot of images of that building as it was being demolished over the course of a couple of weeks. And that one in particular just stood out for me. The award that uh, I won is actually, I share this title with Lisa. <laughs> she was the award winner of the same photo award of merit from Kane Architect the year prior. The very first episode of this podcast I did with Les Stetchison, the designer of that building. And we went and stood beside it as it was being demolished and talked at length about what that building meant to him how he was feeling as the building was being torn down because we were standing there with these gigantic wrecking balls smashing the thing to bits. And it was his feeling that we weren't being terribly progressive about the way that we approach embedded carbon in buildings and that we should have thought differently about a way to reuse that building in a way that would respect its integrity. He was a bit wistful because the building was special to him. But that concept of embedded carbon is something that's become really important in architecture. I was really glad to see that photo that you had done, Jackson, because I took my own photos with my cell phone during the, the demolition. But yours with the garbage truck rolling by was embedded with meaning for me. Was that 
intentionally? Were you waiting for that garbage truck? I don't think so. No, but I like hearing your perspective on that. And that for, for you, there was symbolism there. For me, it just felt right. I was happy to show it to other people. And it's not always like that when you make personal work. You don't always want to show it because you're in your head. Is it good enough? What are people going to think? No, I was really happy to hear your thoughts on that. And also, Terry, I think Les's sentiment about the building not being used properly in its demolition, you know, could you say again, you know, what he had said? Well, he pointed out to me, he said, you know, what they're doing in Scotland with an organization called Zero Waste Scotland is that they're focusing very strongly on the reuse of existing buildings based on the principle that there was a lot of carbon went into the construction of the building. There will be a lot of carbon go into the destruction of the building. They just crush the concrete and they haul it away. He said, we need to be more creative in what we do with existing buildings that need to be repurposed. They don't necessarily need to be demolished. They can be changed, transformed. Right. I know that these are conversations that they dive so much deeper than just could we reuse the material or how could this building be taken apart and and reused in some other way? Lisa, what's next for you this year as we look ahead to 2022? I've just been awarded a Manitoba Arts Council grant to work on my my mid-century modest project. So I'm very excited about that. I get to hopefully, I, I don't know if I'll be able to in March, travel down to certain areas in San Diego this isn't through the grant. This is, I'm going there on my own, but the grant is allowing me to spend time on the project, which is really wonderful. So I'm going to focus on mostly photographing mid-century modest, modern architecture in Manitoba. But then I also, I'm very happy to have this opportunity to go to San Diego and especially there's some amazing sort of modest mid-century modern homes in an area called Point Loma in San Diego. A lot of my projects just take a lot of time to find the places to photograph. I'd say it's probably 50% of my time is just researching and, and getting permission. And then the actual photography is great, but it's, it's only like 10% of, of my effort. I've decided not to go back to the university. I decided a couple of years ago that I was going to, during the pandemic, teach from home. And so I've been doing a lot of uh, photography teaching on, on Zoom, like so many of us are doing. Certainly not everything about the pandemic has been negative. In my situation, there's a hundred students and having the ability to integrate some in-person and then some Zoom tutorials inputs has been really wonderful. And I think a lot of students speak up more, interestingly enough, on Zoom, like during chats or Mm -hmm. um, they just because it's not so intimidating. They're not sitting in front of all their peers and putting their hand up and Mm -hmm. admitting that they don't understand. I want to say a special thanks to both of you for taking so much time and for being prepared to go so deep into what you know and into what you teach. Your conceptual work, your technical work is really exciting to hear about. Thank you very much for your time today on Prairie Design Lab. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Lisa Stinner-Kuhn of Winnipeg is a conceptual and commercial photographer and an instructor at the Martha Street Studio and on Zoom. Her website is lisastinnerkuhn.com. 
Jacqueline Young of Winnipeg is the owner of Station Point Photographic and an instructor in the environmental design program at the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Her website is stationpointphotographic.com. Special thanks today to Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly of the Faculty of Architecture for their invaluable assistance with our Prairie Design Lab podcast. You can listen to us on the radio on UMFM 101.5 FM every Wednesday morning at 11.30 a.m. Today's episode is number 39 and is called Photographers. You can find all 39 episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on our website, prairiedesignlab.com. I'm Terry McLeod, your producer, host, and writer. See you next week.